Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll discuss philanthropist, activist, and humanitarian Eartha White. One of the things that I uh, admire the most about her is uh, how she uh, really lived with the people that, um, that she was serving, and she thought of it as serving. We'll talk about new research into the Ocoee Massacre of 1920. The first was a letter by Annie Hamater, a resident of Ocoee in 1920. And we'll talk about gentrification in Winter Park's Hannibal Square neighborhood. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Reach out and touch somebody's hand. Make this world a better place if you can. Reach out and touch somebody's hand. Make this world a better place if you can. Eartha Mary Magdalene White made the world a better place for African Americans living in Jacksonville through education, civil rights activities, the establishment of health care services, and more. Eartha White was born in 1876 and was adopted by a woman named Clara White. Clara White uh, was, um, you know, a former slave, and uh, she had had a number of children uh, who had died. Tim Gilmore is author of the book In Search of Eartha White, Storehouse for the People. During Eartha White's time, there was this um, myth that was, was told that most people believed that uh, Clara White uh, had her 13th baby and that this baby was kind of prophesied and that this baby would uh, grow up to become a storehouse for the people. That was the phrase that was used um, and, uh, and that that was Eartha White. Uh, the actual truth is that uh, Eartha White was the, uh, the daughter of a man named Guy Stockton, uh, who was part of the uh, well-known and wealthy Jacksonville Stockton family. Uh, in fact, the Stockton family would go on to develop uh, neighborhoods in Jacksonville like Avondale, San Marco, and Ponte Vedra. Uh, she was the daughter of Guy Stockton and a Stockton family servant named Molly Chapman. And so Clara had, uh, you know, lost a number of children, and uh, she and her husband Lafayette adopted Eartha White, um, raised her as their own, and um, you know, Eartha White always had wonderful things to say about Clara, and ended up naming the mission that uh, she and Clara started together in 1904. She later um, called it the Clara White Mission. Eartha White was born in a time of enforced racial segregation, but Jacksonville in the late 19th and early 20th centuries had an active, inspired, and relatively prosperous African-American community. There were several different parts of town that were thriving uh, Black neighborhoods, and probably the best-known one now is, uh, was a neighborhood called La Villa, 
Um, most of it is gone now. There are a few buildings left. People just think of it as a part of downtown now. It was once its own city, had a mayor and alderman, uh, and uh, you know it had started as a plantation. And um, by the uh, turn of the 20th century, and especially into the next couple of decades, it became a thriving, dense, um, cultural uh, place. Um, West Ashley Street uh, was full of uh, theaters and musical venues, uh, including a place called the Globe Theater that Eartha White borrowed money uh, from, from other people um, because uh, she could not, she was not allowed to borrow from the banks herself uh, to uh, use as the Clara White uh, mission headquarters. But actually, um, it really all began in 1904 when uh, Clara, Eartha's adopted mother, uh, started a soup kitchen on uh, Eagle Street, uh, which is now part of First Street. Uh, and that was in uh, a lesser known black neighborhood just north of La Villa called Hansentown. Eartha White graduated from the Stanton School, an important institution in Jacksonville's black community. Tim Gilmore. The Stanton School in Jacksonville is hugely significant and, you know, it's in, it's in really bad shape right now and the board is asking for city council for extra funds to get it, uh, you know, into better shape, which I hope happens. Um, you know, James Weldon Johnson, uh, probably the most famous person ever uh, born in Jacksonville, uh, was a principal at Stanton at one time. And, um, you know, it's uh, as you guys recently talked about on your show, you know, he was he was principal um, and uh, it was there that he wrote uh, he and his brother uh, lift every voice and sing. In fact, Eartha White was part of an opera company, which is rather surprising. <laughs> um, it was called the Oriental American Opera Company. And um, Jay Rosamond Johnson, James Weldon Johnson's brother, was one of the people who uh, who who ran it. But the old Stanton School was really one of the central, most prominent places, uh, you know, for Black Jacksonville in that time. After graduating from the Stanton School, Eartha White attended the Conservatory of Music in New York City and had a brief career as a singer. Sometimes it almost seems like there's nothing worthy that Eartha White didn't do. I mean, just, just the most incredibly full life she did. Um, and it's actually one of the things that I find most interesting about that is, you know, people have made a lot of the fact that Eartha White never married. And during her lifetime, people talked about her being married to the community. Uh, and there was this kind of narrative that she would never have had time for a husband. She was too busy doing good for the community. In fact, in 1970, she told a New York Times reporter, she said, I never married. I was too busy. What man would put up with me running around the way I do? But uh, in 1920, she had been engaged um, or actually before that, I'm sorry, in the 19-teens, she had been engaged and she would have married when she turned 20 to someone in Jacksonville named James Jordan, who actually died of tuberculosis while she was touring uh, with the Oriental American Opera Company. And, um, you know, after that, there seems never to have been a prospect of marriage that she, she considered seriously. When she returned to Jacksonville, Eartha White started a series of initiatives to help the African-American community, first working to build a new school and teaching. She did so many things in this, in this time period. It's just remarkable that one person could do all these things. She uh, was hired to teach at uh, a rural school outside Jacksonville. Uh, it's now within you know, Jacksonville's consolidated city limits, but in a place called Baird. 
and uh, she was uh, responsible for building curriculum uh, and um, all sorts of things that you wouldn't necessarily normally think a teacher would uh, would have to do. Um, but she also started businesses. Um, she uh, really was, you know, um, a strong product of Booker T. Washington's uh, self-uplift ideas at this time. And, um, you know, as she grew the mission, the way I've always kind of thought about it is she, she kind of married Booker T. Washington's ideas with, um, with FDR's uh, ideas, and it became just the center of just every kind of activism and um, community education uh, in, in the city. Uh, really quite remarkable how many things um, she did and how many things were going on at the mission at, at the same time. Eartha White worked with other legendary people from Jacksonville, including activist A. Philip Randolph and author Stetson Kennedy. Tim Gilmore. She worked with a few, uh, you know, names that are uh, maybe better known than hers, but not necessarily rightfully so. Uh, she did work with A. Philip Randolph. She uh, went and met with him in Chicago uh, in 1940 when A. Philip Randolph was first proposing a march on Washington. Um, and of course, uh, certain conditions he was uh, contesting at the time uh, were answered. And so the march didn't happen then. Uh, it happened, you know, 23 years later, of course. She had uh, uh, known A. Philip Randolph and she worked with him. Uh, she also worked on anti-lynching legislation. I find it fascinating that uh, during the 1930s, uh, the Clara White mission actually also became um, a kind of partial headquarters for a lot of um, uh, Works Progress Administration work. So Stetson Kennedy, um, you know, um, also from Jacksonville, uh, and um, his friend Zora Neale Hurston, uh, they worked together out of the mission at times. Uh, Alan Lomax, uh, the famous um, folklorist and musicologist, recorded very elderly at this time, um, former slaves um, singing um, old slave songs at, at the mission. Following the success of the women's suffrage movement, Eartha White wanted to make sure that black women were included. She also fought against voter suppression. In 1920, when women got the right to vote with uh, the 19th Amendment, uh, she, uh, she went door to door helping to register black women to vote. And of course, so black Americans could vote, but there were so many things in their way that uh, uh, you know, Jim Crow laws uh, had put up, but she went door to door and she actually helped in this effort against a Ku Klux Klan intimidation parade um, that um, was held in Jacksonville since 1920, uh, same time that um, similar parades were held around the state in Tampa and Orlando and other, other places, and of course, same time as the, the Okoe massacre. So she, uh, she helped the effort. She helped, she worked with uh, the NAACP and actually James Weldon Johnson um, at this time uh, to uh, stand up to this Klan intimidation parade. Um, and uh, she, on uh, the day, on election day itself, uh, she carried lemonade up and down <laughs> election lines and, um, and she led people singing, uh, uh, you know, old hymns and lift every voice and sing. So just incredible courage that um, I think is, almost hard to fully imagine what that would have been like, you know, that, that kind of courage. The Clara White mission still exists today and has evolved since its inception as a soup kitchen in 1904. 
Under Eartha White's leadership, the mission at various times included an orphanage, job training, prison ministries, and a variety of health care services. Although Eartha White was familiar with some famous people and received many accolades, she chose to live among the economically disadvantaged people that she served. One of the things that I uh, admire the most about her is uh, how she uh, really lived with the people that um, that she was serving, and she thought of it as serving, you know. Um, and uh, she maintained a, a bedroom on the second floor of the Clara White Mission, uh, which people can still visit. It's uh, it's maintained as though uh, Eartha White might come back, you know, at any moment. So she didn't separate herself from the people that she was always trying to help. Uh, she she was right there with them. And uh, they knew her, you know, and she was supposedly um, not quite five feet tall. And yet she had this this larger than life kind of status. And I think it was uh, largely because she didn't separate herself from the people. So, you know, you can visit the uh, the bedroom now. And um, to me, it's almost a kind of sacred space, you know, just to imagine um, this is where she this is where she was and to look out the window and to. Um, think about to try and imagine La Villa at all of these different stages of its history, um, even to know that, you know, these are the stairs that she fell down when she went to the hospital for the last time and, and, and passed away at the beginning of 1974. So it's, uh, it's really kind of a sacred space to me in a lot of ways. Tim Gilmore is author of the book In Search of Eartha White, Storehouse for the People. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Southern trees bear strange fruit blood on the leaves and blood at the root black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, last time we talked about the Yokoi Massacre. I know that you worked on or were consulted on several projects that deal with the commemoration of the Yokoi Massacre. Is there part of the research that stands out for you? Yes, there is. Working on a project like this is very difficult um, to deal with the death and destruction that took place. But there are really two things that moved me in my research. The first was a letter by Annie Hameter, a resident of Ocoee in 1920, and my interactions with her descendants. And the second was attendance at the Masonic burial ritual for July Perry and my interaction with Jerry Urso 
a past historian of the Prince Hall Masons. Annie Hamater was born in Alabama, where she married Jack Hamater. They were sharecroppers. And in the waning years of the 19th century, they and their children migrated to Orange County and settled in Ocoee. They worked hard and acquired land by clearing land for others. In the early 20th century, Annie Hamater attended St. Augustine College, where she took courses in nursing and became a midwife. In the 1910 census, she's listed as a nurse. A little over three weeks after the Ocoee massacre, she wrote a letter to a woman she only identifies as Mrs. Houston. She begins by apologizing for her tardiness in sending the box of fruit and includes some suggestions for preparing the kumquats that were part of the shipment. At that point, the letter takes a darker turn. Quote, we were speaking of lynches and other ill happenings to colored people in the South, she wrote. Although she had never witnessed such events previously, she says one of the most wickedest happenings of a lifetime happened here on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning of the election, end quote. She goes on to detail the arson and deaths in the northern neighborhood of Ocoee and the threats against Blacks living in the southern neighborhood. She professes she doesn't know what to do. She believed the attack was, quote, a prearranged affair to kill and drive the colored people from their homes as they were more prosperous than the white folks. So they were going to get their land for nothing, end quote. Connie, what happened to Annie Hamater's letter? Annie Hamater's letter has a long life. Mrs. Houston was Corina Houston, who lived in Ohio. I don't know how they knew one another, but they did. And apparently they had corresponded before. Apparently Mrs. Houston was a member of the NAACP and she forwarded the letter to the National Organization in New York with a note asking, quote, can't we do something for these poor people, end quote. By the time the letter reached the New York office, Assistant Field Secretary Walter White had already made an investigating trip to Orlando. Indeed, he was there within the week of the attack on Ocoee. Typed copies of the Hamager letter, and the, the letter was written by hand. It looks like it might have been written in pencil, in fact. So typed copies of the letter were made at the NAACP office. Appeals were made to the U.S. Attorney General to launch an investigation using the new Bureau of Investigation, what is now the FBI. The original Hamater letter, that is the handwritten letter, is now in the papers of the Bureau of Investigation in the National Archives and Records Administration. The typed copies are in the Ku Klux Klan file of the NAACP. When I look at Annie Hamater's letter and at the photograph of Annie and Jack Hamater, which is in the archive of the Sanford Museum, I see a woman who was hardworking and strong, both physically and mentally. Even in the worst of times, her faith supported her. As she said in the last sentences of the letter, I am trusting in the Lord for his goodness. 
What are the role of churches and fraternal organizations in ECOE's African-American community? The church and the fraternal organizations sustained the Black community and provided a voice to express their demands for social justice when their vote had been denied. So they had no political outlet, no consistent political outlet for their concerns. But the fraternal organizations and the church helped to voice their concerns. July Perry, who was lynched at the outset of the attack on Ocoee, was hastily buried in Greenwood Cemetery in Orlando in an unmarked grave. A headstone was placed at the grave in 2002. Mrs. Hammeter's descendants put me in touch with Jerry Urso to talk about a ceremony by the Prince Hall Masons of Florida to hold the Masonic burial ritual for July Perry following the 2020 election. Perry had been a member of the Masonic Lodge at Ocoee. And as hastily as he was buried, no ritual was performed. The day of the ritual was beautiful with a blue sky and a comfortable temperature. Masons from across the state were there to honor their brother. Seeing those Masons in their black suits and white aprons march across the expanse of the cemetery, singing this little light of mine was a sight I will not forget as they laid their evergreen sprigs on the grave and nodded to the descendants of July Perry, it seemed a fitting conclusion to a year of public discussion and public concern about racial issues and commemoration of one of the worst events in Florida history. An important story. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Here's a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, This is Florida Frontiers. Jake Green is a senior English and religion major at Rollins College. He has this look at gentrification in Winter Park's Hannibal Square neighborhood. Many communities across the United States today face gentrification, which erodes communal identity. Winter Park in Orange County, Florida, represents a microcosm of those gentrifying pressures. After the Civil War, Central Florida was a land of opportunity. Since most of the state was not plantation land, it was a frontier which served as a blank canvas for the political imagination of emancipated African Americans. Winter Park embodied that progressive ethos. The town has its roots in racial cooperation. The wealthy northerner, Loring Chase, sold lots to African Americans 
who settled in the part of the town known as Hannibal Square. The African-American community was pivotal in the vote to incorporate Winter Park on October 12, 1887. In that year, two African-Americans from Hannibal Square, Walter B. Simpson and Frank R. Israel, were elected as aldermen, and they served from 1887 to 1893. Winter Park history takes a bitter turn in 1892. Southern Democrats began arguing that the town's boundaries were drawn illegally. They intended to disenfranchise the Hannibal Square community, which was the most densely populated area in Winter Park. The town boundaries were invalidated in 1893, and Hannibal Square was detached from Winter Park, not to be reincorporated until 1925. The bitter legacy of these segregationist policies has meant that in decades past, Winter Park has had districts in all but name separated not only on geographic lines, but also on racial ones. Dr. Julian Chambliss, who has studied the history of Hannibal Square for years, describes this situation. You can't just say like, oh, well, there's never been, there's never been district voting because like the spaces were socialized and, and, and theorized as, as racial spaces, right? So like, it's a segregated society. It doesn't matter what's on the books. The lived experience makes clear that there's, there's these districts that people understand and they pursued them through and they pursue them through the sort of political landscape, right? So contemporary landscape, like when we when people talk about, there's this, this sort of mythology. We never had district voting in, in Winter Park, which I find to be a kind of like deliberate erasure of that, right? Because yes, you're using the fact that it's not described that way, but the functional operation of the politics is that it was that way. Winter Park has not elected an African-American representative to the city council since 1887. Recognizing this issue, there was an unsuccessful effort 15 years ago to move Winter Park from the current at-large voting system to single-member districts. Unfortunately, that vote failed. Part of the problem is that African-American property on the west side is valued less than property on the east side, leading to gentrifying pressures for developers who want to increase their profit margin. For a community like Winter Park, this is the real struggle, right? Like, there is no way for, from the African-American perspective, for you to ignore the fact that it is an imbalance in capital that allows for the transformation that we're, we were talking about over the last like 15 years, 20 years to have happened. And you can talk about this a number of ways, but basically black property on the, on the West side is undervalued versus property on the East side. In the vein of this dilemma in 2019, resident Barbara Chandler ran for commission seat four as the first African-American candidate since the 1980s for Winter Park. In August of 2020, the Winter Park City Council voted 3-2 to two to create an ordinance that single-member district voting would be placed on the March 2021 ballot, which would have allowed Winter Park citizens to decide on their system of representation. But in December, that vote failed. If it had passed, Winter Park would have joined other Central Florida cities such as Ocoee, Cocoa, Mount Dora, Sanford, and Winter Garden, all of which have single-member district voting systems. However, the possibility is still open for Winter Park to move to a single-member district system in the future. For Florida Frontiers, 
I'm Jake Green, Senior English and Religion Major at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and this week, Jake Green. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.